Any advice included in this recording is general and has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. As such, you should consider its appropriateness having regard to these factors before acting on it. Any tax information refers to current laws, is not based on your unique circumstances, and should not be relied on as tax advice. Before you make any decision about whether to acquire a certain financial product, you should obtain and read the relevant product disclosure statement. Welcome to Minds to Markets. I'm Mike Drew. He's John Barton. And together, we're exploring the intersection of financial markets, macroeconomics, and all things portfolio construction within the human dimensions of behavioural finance, decision-making under uncertainty, and the important questions of stewarding other people's money. Thanks for joining us on Minds to Markets, the podcast by Investors for Investors. Michael Fury, Principal Delta Research. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's great to have you, Michael, and um, we're so thrilled that you could make some time to chat with us today. We start the podcast as we like to do, talking about your mind. Tell us, <laughs> tell us something. <laughs> tell us something about your background and how this has informed your your, your investment decision making process. Okay. Um, I guess I've always been very quant driven, um, from a very young age, uh, excelled at mathematics in school and then sort of went through to high school from, you know, I guess infants to high school. And then I did a pure mathematics degree at university. Um, and I started as a statistician working, um, for first Newcastle University, then I went into corporate world and ended up in marketing research where we used to apply a lot of really sophisticated um, statistical mathematical methods to um, marketing research, which is predominantly you know, a, bit of a combination of qualitative and survey-based work. And that was really interesting work. Um, but to be honest, I hated hated the, um, I guess the, I love the maths and the statistics, but I hated the industry. Right. Mm. And uh, so I was fairly unhappy in my sort of day-to-day work and then I, someone dragged me along to a conference and I saw uh, someone talking about financial markets and looking at, I guess, different markets in the marketing research. I'm seeing financial markets and this is sort of in the, late 90s where, you know, it's tech boom and, you know, you know everyone, Plenty taxi, taxi drivers are talking about, you know, whatever the latest tech stock was. And uh, I, I sort of looked, looked at this and went, wow, this is a really interesting market. Um, and so then I just started personally studying everything I could and, and I went, this is where I want to take my career. Right. And um, so I progressed – I guess, you know, started studying in financial, uh, applied finance and financial planning and what have you, managed to get a job. And um, I guess that mathematics, mathematical background is something that I've sort of carried through in everything I do when it comes to, um, I guess, investment decisions. And the, the, the beauty of, the, I guess, the, the quantitative um, uh, approach to investment decisions is, I guess, what comes with the framework and the challenging of, um, you know, does it work because you've got data that supports it or doesn't support an outcome. So what was that first role you you landed in finance? 
Yeah. Um, so in marketing research, I was working for Westpac Financial Services in the marketing department there. So I got a bit of exposure to, to the industry there. But to be quite frank, I didn't really understand it too well. Um, but my first role uh, was actually a financial advisor for uh, a bank. And I was on pretty good money as uh, sort of head of marketing research at Westpac Financial Services. And I took an 80% pay cut to start as a financial advisor. That's and a big number. It was a monstrous uh, reduction and I couldn't care less because I'd never been happier. Oh, I loved it. I was fascinated with it. There's a lesson um, just in that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the money was great when I was at Westpac, but mm. um, for, you know, a 28-year-old kid, um, but, or, but, but I, I was not enjoying waking up and going to work every day. Whereas when I started as, a, as an advisor, it was the complete opposite. It was, um, you know, it, it, I loved, I was bouncing out of bed and, you know, really enjoying just sort of um, working with the people I work with, with the clients, with uh, um, I guess uh, what, what goes with uh, all, all the other things of financial advice as well, apart from the investment side of things. And it was something new and challenging and, yeah, that, that learning uh, process I loved as well. So, so when I think pure maths degree, I don't think great communicator, great with people. <laughs> I know you well enough to know you're great with people, but that mathematical thinking still had to come out in what you do and the way you think about it. So how, how do you make that adjustment when dealing with regular humans? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit. I, I discovered in, in the industry that um, I am an analyst first. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, I really enjoy helping people, but I did come back to that, you know, uh, analyst uh, quantitative sort of mindset, and so I shifted my career from the advice, which is very much you know um, people facing and problem solving, you know, and, and a lot of sales type stuff, which is not my core competency. Um. And and shifted my career towards yeah, being more more of that analyst quantitative guy. So the the communication side of things, uh, uh, I always felt was a, a bit of a weakness from a sales perspective. And so moving towards the analyst sort of was something I mean, shift towards my my comfort zone. So so Michael, this is, is you know this is to me fascinating that you know you've you've been classically trained. Uh, you think about the world not as point estimates but as distributions, as a statistician. Yep. You think about the tails, as we all do, of the distribution. So tell us something about your journey and your experiences with what you would regard as the great investors, the people that can bring together things that are clearly evidentiary mm-hmm. in a world that's driven by psychology, perhaps greed currently, some element of fear. How do you, how do you, what what are the what are the characteristics of those minds that really bring together the best of those domains? The characteristics of their minds, right? Um, well, I'll talk about how some of those great investors have influenced me, mm. and I've you know obviously gravitated towards those investors or those minds that did have that quantitative uh, bent. Um, so. The biggest influence on the way I think is 
probably the the pharma, French, Carhartt, um, academics, where uh, you know that they, they identified systematic factors that just so happened to have you know produced alpha, that mm-hmm. risk adjusted outperformance, and explained you know a lot of the risk um, that. Uh, what I've discovered and many of us have discovered is explains a lot of the, the fund manager and so-called other investment experts as well. So that's largely thanks to you, Mike, and uh, some of your colleagues um, through the various universities and institutions. And um, so that's that systematic, simple, evidence-based research from academia, which is, you know, um, um, over decades and decades, it's like, well, yeah, this this makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so I I took some of that information when I was learning it through you, when I was studying my masters and what have you in applied finance, and I'm working in, uh, I guess, wealth management in research and you know, in I guess amongst financial planning, and I could never quite understand what why isn't this being spoken about mm. why isn't this being used um, in the field in, in the field yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. so so that that sort of that that research that information has been influential to me because I saw I saw an opportunity where here's here's some really strong information that I think can add value to a client at the end of the day that we could I think use more effectively in the wealth management industry. And that's not to say it's not being used in the investment industry or the financial, you know, because institutional investors were capturing it in different ways and what have you. And that whole smart beta movement in wealth management, particularly in Australia, has really only been strong and sort of widely accepted, I believe, over the last uh, probably half a dozen years. Right. Fascinating, yeah. And this, and this to me is the best segue then into sort of the next part of the podcast, which is markets. Um, yep. So really appreciate you sharing that. But let's maybe move to your role in markets. It's a significant one. Tell us something about your place in, in the ecosystem mm-hmm. and uh, Delta Advisory and Research. How, how, do, how, do you, how, do, how do you contribute and what's your place in, in, in the ecosystem that is financial services? Okay. So if I was to say what, what do I do, I, I solve investment problems for the wealth management industry. That's it. Okay. So how, how do I do that? Um, so my my business has two parts. There's research, there's advisory. The research is, surprise, surprise, quantitative driven. It's all factor-based stuff. It's all about understanding the risks around um, invest the, I guess, thousands of investments that are available to the wealth management industry and then how we can, then using that information to build better portfolios. That's what the research part's a bit about. And the advisory part is really, that's me as consultant, uh, trying to help as many investors through advisory businesses as I can. Um, and so I work with uh, financial planning companies and, and, and sometimes fund managers um, to, to basically use that quantitative framework to, to build better portfolios, get better outcomes for, um, for investors. So you're really the advisor to advisors? Yeah, I've some several people have said that to me in the mm-hmm. past, but I think that's probably a fair description. Yeah. And what's the real, what's the greatest challenge of working with that audience, which has their own biases and ah, yes. their own issues? And <laughs> what's yes. the particular challenge there? Uh, there are so many. And you're on the. <laughs> there record. are so you're many. The absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, 
Oh, it's. I'll start with one. It's. It's. Uh, there's a lot of short termism, and that sort of perpetuates across the industry. Okay. So you know, what, what do you where do you think that? I agree with you. Where do you think that comes from? Is that clients, fund managers, marketing departments, financial planners, all of the above? Yeah, I. It, it probably comes from several sources. There's uh, seems to be. Um, well, I guess there could be a, a partly a, a lack of patience. So you, you, there's sometimes over-promising from um, fund managers or investment, you know, where they are, you know, saying we are going to provide this type of return distribution or, mm-hmm. or experience and then if it doesn't happen in the first few months or first year or two, then – Oh, that's it. You're out, and and that's on the active side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, passive, simple, because we know what we're going to get, and that's typically what we're going to get. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to get an index return, but it's the active side of things where most, I guess, of the wealth management sort of plays, and that's where I see most lack of patience, and and probably all active management. If we're going to accept what they're bringing to the table with the way they invest, we have to give them a full market cycle for that to play out and that rarely happens. So my, my observation is that at most an underperforming fund will only you know be there for at most three years mm-hmm. and that's not even hard. Just before they come good. Quite often. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I'm on the record, I know, and I'm happy to, happy to <laughs> say this, the research ratings houses probably have a bit to answer for as well mm-hmm. where I think – um, they'll see underperformance and they'll downgrade a fund, and and that's again they're not giving the you know the the, the chance for uh, outperformance, and that they're probably a little more performance driven as well. So it's across the industry from um, clients who will initially express their dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. the advisors will run out of patience, and then we've even got you know the research houses. That- so, so is that just a reality of human psychology across all of those market yeah. participants, or is yeah. there a breakdown in incentives in there somewhere? A breakdown of incentives. Uh, yeah, the, there's there's the there's certainly that 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 uh, emotion that we we don't want to we don't want people to want be unhappy. So we're, we're going to sort of come with a oh are you not happy with that? Okay, that's okay. We'll ch- we'll change we'll that something. investment. We'll do something to make you happy. And so then that probably leads to the second problem that we see but is then we chase performance. Mm-hmm. We invest in the latest best performer, which is often you know, the, the wrong thing to do. Uh, I, I try and bring a uh, in my consulting a contrarian view, a devil's advocate view, and when I'm solving investment problems, sometimes that that solution I'm trying to bring is just just that devil's advocate. Mm. I'm just um, glad that none of this short termism happens in institutional and family office. I'm sure it never <laughs> happens in that space. Um, yeah, they're Michael, still humans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Michael, um, the bowbird problem. So there's the uh, the chase for you know yesterday's winner, which mm-hmm. is palpable but there's also isn't there not a, a bit of a bowbird problem that the bright shiny new thing gets to the top of the investment committee agenda and yeah h- how does one deal with that what, what's your you know we, let's say to in today's world cryptos <laughs> and if you know all the things that we can list off um you know there was a tweet this morning that uh you know there are some cryptos now that are larger than you know 400 of the constituents of the s&p 500 i mean mm. this this is 
this is a very important debate that I think um, you know we'd love to get your perspectives on. Well, as a quant, I like to see a track record. So that's how I originally you know can get rid of the the newest latest thing. So hasn't got you one. Know, what's the evidence that this is going to work? Mm-hmm. And and uh, short termism, uh, you know, a short track record is insufficient for me. So. That aside, there's got to be some sort of uh, intuitive, common sense, uh, qualitative, um, you know, logical reason why we're going to, you know, get this outperformance, uh, whatever return it may be, okay? And then what what I try and um, uh, recommend, well, part of the portfolio design um um, solution, if you like, is every investment has to have a role in that portfolio. So this leads me to probably a third problem is that we're looking at too often the investments in isolation mm. when we should be looking at the investments in the broader context of the portfolio. What is that going to bring to the portfolio? Mm-hmm. How is it going to correlate with other investments? Are we basically capturing all the same risks or, or are we diversifying or what, what do we want to capture? What do we want to avoid? What, and, and so there's all of that. And with, with crypto, um, that's got me baffled at the moment simply because as a currency, it's too volatile. As a store um, of wealth, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. there's nothing sort of underneath yeah. it. There's a lack of trust from government. There's a, there's a whole range of problems with it. So, so, so Michael, muscle memory. Let's maybe talk about some muscle memory for investors. So, you know, what are the great lessons you've learned by investing through the cycles? Mm-hmm. When you're you're a gatekeeper, you are an allocator of capital. Tell us something of the the, the sort of the the really deep insights that you you've taken away from being invested in the field. Okay, so first of all, we need. Um, every investor that's making the investment decisions needs to have an overarching belief philosophy around what works. Right. Okay, that 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 is critical. If you don't know what works, then you need to, you know, I guess a- outsource to someone who has a belief, um, whatever that belief may be. Um, but you, you, we, we need to have a philosophy around what works, and then. We need to make sure that the portfolio we build is a reflection of that philosophy. And if it underperforms that philosophy, um, if it underperforms the market or your expectations or your objectives, and also we need an objective, um, then we need to challenge it. But we also got to be conscious of that that underperformance may be short term, and we've got to you know, give it the full cycle, and we've got to have patience, and um, we'll change the portfolio if the underlying investments are not doing what they said they would do what, and not behaving the way we expect and not a reflection of our philosophy. So it's that bigger picture stuff that um, is probably my biggest learning that we continually need to go back to. We continually need to focus on as opposed to, oh, that specific investment <laughs> underperform. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's fine. Underperformance is fine in the context of broad you know, a broader portfolio. Diversification means we always have to say sorry because it's always mm-hmm. going to happen. So do, do you find pulling people back to that is a major part of what you're doing in, in yes. your consulting work? It's, a, it's the biggest part. Um, the biggest part in my consulting to uh, businesses is avoiding portfolio turnover. Mm-hmm. More often than not, I'm going to a meeting 
where I'm advising portfolios, I'm running portfolios, and I'm recommending we don't change the portfolio mm. Which unless is in- it's just a rebalance. That's my biggest challenge. So quite often um, the others around the t- want to make change. Because they feel like action is yeah, that's right. positive. Action's making a difference. Yeah, exactly action's doing right. something, earning the fee. But not doing something is doing something as well. Of course. And that's not recognised. And, um, yeah, that's probably probably my biggest challenge. So, so Michael, the, the, our podcast, Minds to Markets, is about linking psychology, obviously, with investing, you know, the, the interplay between those two. So, so in this last sort of third of our chat, we'd, we'd love to sort of coalesce those two ideas. So tell us something about your personal process or to avoid groupthink and the worst of sort of, of, of behavioural blind spots. Right. So every meeting I go to where I'm sort of the consultant, influencer, um, I to, to, to avoid um, to avoid groupthink, well, what I endeavour to do is bring evidence around uh, um, the past, the recent and, and the outlook. And so I, I, create, I try and create a framework that is um, evidence-based, let's put it that way. And, and that's just not what I think. Sometimes it's what others think. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and I try and have a diversity of opinion to the table. If I'm chairing an investment committee, I'll certainly see. I'll always seek to have both sides of the of the view, as well. Mm. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier that I play the devil's advocate. So if everyone is, you know, in in in, Cheerleading in a group, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I'll always try and yeah. um, take the opposite view and, and challenge that. Um, so hopefully you see that a little bit with some of our <laughs> investment committee stuff. Um, it, and and I'll take the opposite view even if I don't believe it. So, as the the consultant, the, the the third party in the room, is that perhaps easier because you're not you're somewhat separated from your client? Is it easier than what? Than than going along with the group? If, is it easier to be the contrarian to argue the devil's advocate? That's pretty easy for me. So, yeah. um, <laughs> I think as a numbers guy, as a um, dare I say, sort of researcher, a sort of research analyst, I guess um, in the industry, which is been the case for the last 15 years for me, um, I always look for what's wrong with things. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's really what I think a, an investment analyst researcher does. It's, you know, you're looking at investment risk and risk means bad things might happen. Mm-hmm. So you're always looking for what's wrong. And so for me, that that is a pretty easy part. Because <laughs> the BDMs the and the marketing teams are good at telling you what will go wrong. Oh, exactly right. And, okay. and, and like – you, you'll never hear an equities guy speak who doesn't think the equity market's not going to go up and same, you, you rarely hear a bond guy um, not talk about the world about it, about to end. Well, <laughs> to, to be a little when's a good time to buy real estate? Yeah. Today and from me. That's yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'll always try and take the opposite view. So, so, Michael, you know, we were so keen to get you on our podcast because, you know, John and I are of the view that there's too much point estimate thinking in the industry and not enough distribution around the point estimate yeah. thinking. So and, and your career is characterized by that mm. in both training and 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 your your professional advisory services. Yep. Tell us something about this is the hard question. Tell us something about what keeps you awake at night currently in markets. And and I'm going to use the sort of the black swan or the grey rhino 
Mm. What are the things that are sort of whirring around in your brain? Because it feels like everything is priced like everything is going to work currently. Mm. Yeah. Um, Markets, uh, I'm not. Yeah, what keeps me awake at night with respect to, to markets investing at the moment? Look, uh, I'm not – I haven't understood sort of why valuations are where they're at for, for, for some time. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've been wrong for a little while, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it's a fascinating – you know, with, say, US equities I think are super expensive. That, that worries me. Uh, I'm less worried about valuations in other markets. But we know that if, if US – um, falls over, mm. the share market falls over, then that typically influences the rest of the world as well. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah. So, so markets become correlated. And so the US markets is, probably keeps me up at, up, and, up at night a little bit. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating what's going on in bond markets at the moment mm-hmm. where you know, the yield curve's really steepened where the central banks are playing less of a role out longer. And uh, the, the, it seems like the market thinks inflation's coming and the central banks are saying, well, mm. um, yeah, inflation's got to come, but it'll just go away again because, you know, I think the, some of the academic evidence that's come out in recent years shows that, um, you know, the, the, the massive fiscal stimulus that comes through is uh, not instantaneously inflationary, but it's, it's close to it. It, it, it. it gets spent straight away, inflation goes up short term, and then it sort of mm. dissipates because at the, it's, the stimulus is there because we've got a deflationary environment on the other side of that. Mm. And so, therefore, the net-net is not much inflation. So this big, big um, stimulus coming out of the US particularly will probably be instantaneously inflationary and then it might go away. Now, the challenge to that is that, say, the Fed models, that what's the biggest factor that influences next inflation with their mathematical models? It's the latest inflation. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. So if inflation does go up, that that will likely influence future inflation as well. So, could. so there's two things battling, markets versus Fed, Fed belief, and uh, it's, I have no idea where it's going, going to end, but I know what bonds are going to return in mm. government because it's the yield, mm. which is a little higher than it used to be. Mm. So no, what's not. probably a similar question in a way, maybe a bit different, what's the question that investors should be asking their advisors at the moment in that context? Um, okay. Well, the, invest, the investors should always ask their advisor, how are we tracking versus our goals versus our objectives? Um, and, uh, you know, what changes should I be making there? And the advisor response is hopefully that, you know, the, the, the risk characteristics of the investment portfolio are aligned to meet those objectives and what have you. They should be considering rebalancing. Um, I think given the, the the way markets are at the moment where valuations are you know, a, bit all, a bit crazy in certain parts, I, I think taking concentrated bets are really um, courageous. And so... In the, in the yes minister style. Yeah. <laughs> so diversification I think is, is fairly crucial mm-hmm. as well. Okay. Um, so, so I think... Investors need to be focused about how well diversified they are and what, what, what bets are they taking on and then challenge those. Okay. So, Michael, maybe as a sort of a final question um, before we get to some sort of um, some background on some socials and some different things, what, what's something, an investment or a thematic that we should be 
that we should be starting to explore. Where, where, where are you spending time at the moment in building capability? Okay. Um, where am I building capability? Where should we explore? Well, well, I'm I'm always reviewing. Um, I guess those those factors yeah. that that um, have worked and haven't worked in uh, you know uh, would it be value etc. Um, and there's there's a few of these that have uh, not really worked so well in recent mm. times. Okay. Mm. So I'll, I'll focus on value, mm. right? Mm. So, so I'm a bit of a value investor. That's my my bias, and that hasn't really worked for a number of years. And it's my bias because it's fairly intuitive, makes a lot of sense. Mm. I would rather buy cheap stocks than expensive stocks. Mm. It's that simple, okay? And and the growth stocks, which are typically pretty expensive, have seriously outperformed value for the last 10, 15, GFC. And, mm. and in the crisis, Normally, growth stocks get hammered, and, they, and they've completely rallied. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly right. So, um, so why, why, when does value outperform? And how often value outperforms in the down, yeah, in, in that mm. crisis where markets crash. So, so that happened in um, so the tech tech crash. Yep. Yeah, value significantly outperformed boom, um, growth. So, um, if we think about, I guess. The last couple um, of big market drawdowns in the GFC and COVID crash, uh, they were uh, sort of liquidity crunches. Mm-hmm. Okay, so strength of balance sheet mattered. Now a value stock is cheap, and um, and it's not necessarily cheap because it got really strong balance sheets. Tends to be weaker on average. Yeah, it's it's often those sold down stocks because there's a lack of belief on the future of the you know I guess the the, the capability of the company etc. You know old old industry um, etc. So it's if you think about you know, I guess a high proportion of those value stocks you know with with that sort of um, you know maybe a struggling balance sheet or you know not much growth into the future because of their business model then it sort of makes sense that they didn't work in the GFC and they didn't work okay. So what worked was that quality, mm. which is strength of balance sheet. So there's two systems. So that's sort of the Robert Novi Mark sort of view of the world. The yeah. yeah. I, and I always say to investors, it's your Warren Buffett one too. Mm. So Warren Buffett was a value investor mm. until he discovered that quality factor, mm. which was consistent profitability and strong, you know, low levels of mm. debt. Mm. So those, those, that, those, that combination I think is something we really need to be thinking about today. Now, when does value sometimes work also? It's when the economy is recovering, mm-hmm. right? The market recovered last year, but the economy certainly didn't. It kept going mm. down, 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 down. And thanks to the vaccines that, first of all, the efficacy, the, um, uh, the strength of e- efficacy with many of the vaccines was announced back in November. That's when got we started in. to see because <clears throat> all of a sudden the markets went, ooh, a normal economy might be a possibility and then we start to see value and then the, the vaccines are started to work in practice and so we're seeing value sort of come back. And that could continue, could, never know, but mm. could until, you know, as we progress towards value, uh, as a normal economy. Mm. Mm. So that's value, mm. right. Now we mentioned where markets are at price-wise. Mm. Okay. Um, the historic returns... Uh, if we look at sort of market drawdowns, equity market drawdowns, when they're greater than 20%, arbitrary number, but roughly that, 
in you know over many many years, at least my, as far back as my data goes, that quality factor seems to be you know it, it goes down as well, but rarely as far right. as the market. Mm-hmm. So I think you know understanding the quality, the strength of balance sheet, the profitability of those companies um, that you know you, your, your investment manager or your portfolio sort of invested in is also a second factor. And the third factor, which I haven't mentioned yet, um, which I'm looking at, is the the minimum volatility, the low volatility right. factor, where the the research has shown that um, over the last I guess it sort of started 50 years ago, roughly. But um, if company, it's not so much companies with low volatility outperform the market; it's more the companies with high volatility underperform. Right. Mm-hmm. So you take those out of your portfolio, and there seems to be some alpha outperformance, risk-adjusted outperformance. That low vol hasn't really worked in recent times, but there are defensive characteristics there. Okay. So if markets draw down. Because they're a lower volatility, they, they don't draw down as far. Mm-hmm. So I think that is also a defensive characteristic that could potentially cushion against any drawdown from a valuation perspective. You know, because equity markets seem a bit. You're seeing more, expensive. more, more interest in queries about alternatives at the moment in the same sort of vein. Alternatives, okay. How so, do you define alternatives? Yeah, yeah. So I define alternatives in two ways. Um, hopefully, we've got enough time for this, but. Mm-hmm. Um, there's alpha alternatives and beta alternatives. Mm. In English, alpha is like a hedge funds, okay, where where we're sort of um, where we're investing in particular strategies where we're relying on the manager's skill to produce a, a return distribution. And then there's beta alternatives, which are really it's your market like alternatives that are different to your traditionals, okay, like equities and bonds are your traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and your beta alternatives are like, say, oh, commodities, gold, um, dare I say it, cryptos. Um, uh, and, and I guess for some it might be private equity, private credit where it's sort of about illiquidity. But they're linked to markets but but that that's probably a couple of market-like examples. Okay? And they're, very, they're becoming very, very popular at the moment. I'm interested in alternatives in the wealth management context because that's where we're really challenged – with building portfolios and alternatives because I, I like alternatives in what they can potentially bring to a portfolio. But in the context of wealth management and advice, we're, we're challenged because of compliance reasons, mm. okay? So they're always treated as a growth asset, even though which, they may not be. doesn't make a lot of sense. That's right. Um, we've got diversification challenges, okay? Um, this is not compliance, but we've got diversification challenges because – um, we can't easily we can't build um, big diversified portfolios of different alternative strategies, multiple different hedge funds that are bringing different things. Which um, we've traditionally chosen one or two. Mm-hmm. Mm. So the the compliance part, the challenge there, is that when a when an advisor chooses a one or two strategies that are potentially complex, and they start behaving a bit strangely, we've got to know your product problem because they're normally complex and the investor doesn't understand them and then all of a sudden we've got a relationship issue because the investment hasn't worked no one's really understood it and so so um yeah that that becomes difficult and the best example i'll give just quickly was managed futures managed futures as a cohort of strategies 
produce really strong performance in 2008 when equity markets went down 40%. Okay. So advisors um, generally, and not all, but, but many advisors felt that, okay, managed futures are like a hedge to equity market risk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Wrong. Mm. They might be. Mm. They can be sometimes. They can be sometimes. Mm. But but what you're buying there is momentum and momentum works sometimes, sometimes it doesn't and well, it, it, works it really for you depends. Or against you. That's right. Mm. So so that know your product, yeah, what's the purpose? What's the purpose within the broader context of the portfolio? We've always got to go back to that framework. And, um, you know, that that's an example where complex products can really challenge that portfolio if you don't really understand the core characteristics you're buying of that that investment. So come back to purpose and have a clear philosophical foundation for everything you, you want to Absolutely. Have. So, Michael, um, look, we didn't get to cycling, perhaps thankfully, because you and John would be here for another two hours. That's a different podcast. This is is not a 90-minute portfolio. No, no, Um, no. no. And we didn't get to your time as uh, Moneyball in cricket statistics, which is one of my great (laughs) stories too, but we should see that at another time. Um, Three quick ones to to wrap up, Michael. Um, We like to give back. Tell us something. Tell us what you're reading at the moment. Um. What I'm reading at the moment, I've just finished a book. Uh, this sounds a bit pretentious on the Magna, Magna Carta. Mm. So it's a bit of uh, medieval uh, um, history there, which, uh, um, uh, dare I say, it was influenced by some death metal music I, I've been listening now, to. There's an interesting segue. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. That, that yeah. These yeah. Ask these three quick questions. Second question <laughs> uh, on the socials: someone that you follow, or when you create your. Um, your Twitter or whatever your preferred social is. Who's an influencer? Who's someone that you like to read this stuff? Um, yeah, I've gone off Twitter um, recently, um, so maybe that's a yeah. I was addicted to the whole Donald Trump thing. Um, so, so. That's come up in every. We're batting three for three. That's come up in every podcast. Well, I, I, I bet. <laughs> um, but I, I, I guess it's probably not socials. But to be honest, I'm, I'm listening to podcasts more than uh, okay. on the socials yeah, well, at the moment. Podcast you like? Awesome. Yeah. So Apart this from mine's tomorrow, of course, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's there's probably three types of podcasts I'll listen to. Um, most of them are comedy. So anything to do with uh, sort of Ed, Ed Cavalli and uh, Ross Noble okay. and that crew I love. Um, so I'm listening to a lot of that. Um, I'm a sports science nut. Mm. So uh, Professor Ross Tucker out of South Africa has this brilliant podcast um, called The Science of Sport. Mm. Um, just love listening. I, yeah, I can't get enough of that. Yeah. And then I'll listen to sort of some of the the, the business related ones. Um, I've, I think Barry Ritholtz at Bloomberg's got a pretty mm-hmm. good one yeah. uh, that I that I enjoy listening to. He's got some great Very interviews good. with some fantastic uh, investors. And finally, Michael, um, if our listeners today wanted to support a philanthropic cause, um, who, who would be your a cause um, or a charity that, that you like to support? Ah, good question. Um, I've just made a donation to John's. Uh, um, um, trip so uh yeah well, so, well done michael Thank yeah you. yeah so uh that that's um um yeah supporting john with the with the cycling trip chain reaction, up, foundation, chain reaction foundation sorry it was yeah. uh otherwise i think anything to do uh with uh oh i guess depression uh mental health anything to do there i think it's a big issue in society um so i think anything to do with that works for right. Thanks so much for sharing. Michael Fury, great pleasure to have you with us. Pleasure, Stay thank tuned. you. See you next time. Cheers. 
Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Minds to Markets. If you have any questions, any feedback, or if you have any special requests for guests in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to follow us on Twitter or send us an email.